Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise this day for the great epiphany, the appearing of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his appearing in humble love and magnificent glory. His light shining upon the nations, bringing truth and salvation to all who are given eyes to see. May we be like the wise men, seeking him, finding him, offering him our gifts. May the glory of the star that led the Magi arise in our hearts today. May we be led to worship the Savior in reverent fear. Oh God, may we receive gifts and give gifts all to the praise of your glory and the saving of our souls. This we pray to you, our Heavenly Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. Amen. Our lesson of the day is Psalm 72. Listen carefully to God's Word. This is of Solomon. O God, give your justice to the king and your righteousness to the son of the king. He will judge your people with righteousness and your lowly ones with justice. The mountains will bear peace for the people and the hills in righteousness. He will give justice to the lowly of the people. He will save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. They will fear you while the sun lasts, and in the presence of the moon, generation after generation. He will come down like rain upon mown fields, like showers, the watering of the earth. In his days the righteous one will sprout, and abundance of peace, until the moon is no more. And he will rule from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth, Before him shall kneel the wilderness dwellers, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts near. All kings will bow to him. All nations will serve him. For he rescues the needy man who pleads, and the lowly one who has no one to help him. He spares the poor and needy, and the souls of the needy he saves. From exploitation and violence he will redeem their souls, and precious is their blood in his eyes. And may he live! Let gold of Sheba be given to him, and let prayers be made for him continually, and let him be blessed all the days. There will be an abundance of grain in the land on the heads of the mountains. Its fruit will rustle like Lebanon, And they will blossom from the city like the grass of the earth. His name will be forever. In the presence of the sun, His name will increase. And they will be blessed in Him. All the nations will call Him happy. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wonders. And blessed be His glorious name forever. All the earth will be filled with His glory. Amen. And amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the inspiration of your word by your spirit. We thank you for preserving it for our benefit even today. And we ask that 
You would consecrate us by Your Word that we would indeed be living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to You. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I don't know about you, but I find it highly ironic and almost amusing that Americans seem to be so obsessed with British royalty. There are more TV shows about British monarchs these days than you can shake a stick at. I can't even count them all. And the announcement of a royal birth or a royal wedding always creates a huge media frenzy, even in the U.S., maybe especially in the U.S. There are lots of people who have theorized as to why this might be, but one lesson I think that we can draw from this phenomenon is that kings and queens, monarchs and royalty are really entertaining, really interesting Uh, As long as they're not your king or queen, as long as you aren't funding their lifestyle, I think the royal family in Britain took in like $60 million uh, in taxpayer money from the people of Britain last year. Uh, Kings and queens are great and, and fun as long as nobody tries to actually exert any royal authority, right? And this may be the very same sort of attitude that many people, even many Christians, have toward another far greater king. The king of kings, in fact. The fact that Jesus is king, the fact that he is Lord of lords and ruler of the world, doesn't really concern people too much because they think that his kingship doesn't really have any effect on them, any bearing. Like, like the monarchy in Britain, it's a, it's a great story. It's kind of like a fairy tale in real life. The pageantry is real, you know, beautiful and all of that. But as long as, it's great as long as I don't have to actually submit to his kingship. But Psalm 72 is no fairy tale. And the king of Psalm 72 is not someone you just shrug off as irrelevant to your life. But here's the real question. When we examine Psalm 72 and the kind of king described here, what sane person would would object to a king like this? This is the kind of king that most people would love to have. He's the kind of king that makes the land, makes the people flourish. Now before we dive into the psalm itself, we need to understand a bit of the covenantal context of royal psalms uh, like this one. We heard uh, the passage from 2 Samuel 7 that uh, records for us God's covenant with David. It's, it's also recorded in 1 Chronicles 17. And this Davidic covenant, this 
um, covenant that God makes with David introduces a new dynamic into God's plan of redemption. The people of Israel, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, had always been identified as the Son of God, as God's Son. Ever since Exodus chapter 4, God claims uh, the people of Israel as His own Son, and He sends um, Moses to go and pronounce, announce to Pharaoh uh, that God is going to rescue His Son. That's why there's so much about sons in the book of Exodus and at the uh, the covenant at Sinai constitutes officially constitutes the nation of Israel as God's son, God's royal priesthood, the holy nation, the special possession of God, the nation that would mediate God's blessings to all other nations. But with the introduction of the Davidic covenant, with the promises that God makes to David and his dynasty, the heir of David's throne is identified as God's son. God claims David's heir as the son of God. So son of God is a royal term. And this marks a significant change in how God deals with the nation. The Davidic king is officially instituted as the representative Israelite. The heir of David's throne is now regarded as the embodiment of the entire nation. He is, the king is a corporate person. The fate of the nation rests on him. And it's this new reality, this new dynamic that sets the stage for Jesus to come as the Messiah who embodies Israel's life in his own life and fulfills in himself everything that Israel was called to be. Now as we look at Psalm 72, keep that keep that in the back of your mind because of course Psalm 72 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, great David's greater son as we'll uh, sing later on. And as we look at this psalm, I'm going to follow the structure of the psalm, which divides neatly into uh, six sections. It, it goes uh, A, B, C, and then it does it all over again. A, B, C. It's like singing the first three verses in one key and then singing uh, the same verses again in another key. And the first section, the very first verse of the psalm, lays the foundation that the rest of the psalm is built on. Verse 1 says, O God, give your justice to the king and your righteousness to the son of the king. This psalm is half prayer, half prophecy. And verse 1 establishes the fact that the king, the righteous king, the king of Psalm 72, the Davidic king, is his throne is established by God's own judgment, by God's own righteousness. Romans 13 explains that every earthly ruler is established by God to accomplish God's purposes. But the reign of God's anointed king, the, the throne of the Davidic king, is uniquely founded upon God's own justice and righteousness. 
this king's throne will only endure because it is God who secures it. And that's the story of the Davidic dynasty. God sustains the throne of David against all odds in spite of uh, all that they do wrong because of this promise. And so because the king's throne is founded upon God's own righteousness, because the king's throne is based on the judgment of God himself, the king's authority is a derivative authority. It is not his own authority that he exercises. And the righteousness that he is called to enact is the righteousness of God himself. This is the, this is the gist of verses 2 and 3. The king receives the justice and the righteousness of God, and then, by virtue of that fact, he is called to extend God's righteousness to the people that he rules. The king becomes a conduit of God's blessing to the people. He judges the people with God's own righteousness. He he judges God's lowly ones with God's justice. So uh, the psalm says that the mountains and the hills bear peace to the people. I think that this reference to the mountains and the hills is a reference to the the throne, uh, the palace, and the temple in Jerusalem where God's blessings are flowing out Uh, to the people, to the rest of the land from Mount Zion, from the mountain of God. And verse 4 describes how these blessings flowing down from God's house, flowing down from the royal palace, uh, the peace of God that's flowing out from the king will flow all the way down to the lowest of the low. These blessings permeate every aspect of society. Verse 4 says, He will give justice to the lowly of the people. He will deliver the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. The blessings of this righteous king flow to every member of society. Not just a privileged few. Not just the elite. Even the weak and the vulnerable receive justice under God's anointed King. But they don't even stop there. The blessings of God flow beyond just the lowest members of society. They, they lead to spiritual revival and even a renewal of creation. Even the land itself is said to flourish under the reign of God's King. Verses 5 and 7, this next section, describe the blessings of God that flow to the people and to the land. They will fear you while the sun lasts. They will fear the Lord. This is what is being said here. They will fear the people, the lowly, the ones receiving God's blessings, will fear the Lord while the sun lasts. And in the presence of the moon, generation after generation, He, the King, will come down like rain upon mown fields, like showers, the watering of the earth. In His days, the righteous one will sprout and an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. 
You see, most pagan religions of the ancient world centered around a king who was regarded as divine. And worship of the pharaoh or the emperor, whoever the demigod happened to be, worship of this uh, divine king was thought to be essential for good weather, for plentiful crops, for, for military victory, and for general prosperity in society. In other cultures, uh, this, these sorts of uh, prosperity would be sought through idolatry, through uh, ritual sacrifice that was supposed to appease the gods or, or buy their favor. But in stark contrast to these pagan religions, Psalm 72 depicts the royal Messiah as God's representative, not God Himself. And His righteousness causes the people to fear and worship the Lord, not Himself. He doesn't act like a God. He doesn't think that He's God because He's executing God's righteousness. He's representing God and pointing people to the God He represents. And uh, by virtue of that fact, the people don't have to bribe God into blessing them. God freely bestows His blessings on the land through this king. In fact, the psalm describes a righteous king as absolutely necessary for a land and its people to flourish. He will come down like rain upon mown fields. A righteous king is just as important to the flourishing of the land as rain itself. So, how can a king be like rain? Have you ever thought about that? How exactly does a righteous king make a society flourish, much less the land itself? Well, a righteous king enforces laws that restrain evil and promote righteousness. A righteous king ensures that the people are not overly burdened by excessive taxation. A righteous king promotes and rewards hard work and industry. A righteous king ensures that contracts are enforced fairly, that property rights are protected, that borders are secured against invaders. All of these things provide the ingredients necessary for a people, a society, and even the land itself to flourish. A righteous king provides legal recourse to all members of society, not only those with the money uh, to win in court or to hire the slickest lawyer. This sort of government causes people to flourish. It causes the land itself to flourish under wise stewardship. Imagine what it would be like to live in a society with a king like that, with a government like that. And not surprisingly, this sort of domestic policy is actually really good foreign policy. And that's what we see in the C section, verses 8 through 11. 
May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Before him shall kneel the wilderness dwellers, and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts near. All kings will bow to him. All nations will serve him. The central section is filled with references to other passages of Scripture in which God promises to bless His anointed King with a vast worldwide dominion. All the way back to Genesis, Genesis 15, God had promised Abram that He would give His offspring this land. And He said it would be from the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then in Exodus 23, when God is commanding, commissioning the people to go and claim this promised land, He says, I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, the Mediterranean Sea, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. And then in uh, other passages, like Psalm 2, This uh, promise of a vast dominion to the Lord's King is expanded to include the entire world. Psalm 2 says, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 72 reinforces these promises that the Lord's King will be given universal sovereignty. Nothing will be outside of His dominion. No one will be beyond the boundaries of His empire. His enemies will be brought into submission and His loyal subjects will gladly offer their tribute. And of course, the Magi coming to worship the Christ child was only the beginning. They were the first fruits of the fulfillment of these promises. And in fact, the nations paying homage to the king described in verses 10 and 11 is described in terms of Levitical worship. The kings of Tarshish, that's modern day Spain, and the coastlands, that's probably all the areas around the Mediterranean, are said to render tribute. This is the the same language of the tribute offering or the grain offering of Leviticus 2. This is exactly what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 60. He says, For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and their gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel. For He has made you beautiful. Psalm 72 also describes how the kings of Sheba That's modern-day Yemen. The kings of Sheba will draw near with offerings for the Lord. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, All kings will bow to Him. All nations will serve Him. This is not just political homage of a vassal state. These are all words for worship. The nations, the kings of the nations are being drawn to worship the Lord because of the rule of this righteous king. 
Solomon gives us a glimpse of what this looks like when the queen of Sheba and other um, world leaders come to Jerusalem to offer their worship uh, at the temple. But Revelation 21 shows us the full and uh, the final fulfillment of all of these promises. John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." The heavenly city that John saw, the heavenly city into which the nations are bringing their tribute, is none other than the bride of the Lamb, the church of Jesus. This is the heavenly city that is slowly but surely descending from heaven, bringing heaven to earth. And this is exactly what Jesus has commanded us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer means a lot of things, but it, there's one thing that it doesn't mean. It doesn't, it's not a prayer for the world to end so that Jesus can finally become king. This is a prayer for Jesus to establish His reign on earth through His church. This is a prayer for the nations to be discipled. This is a prayer for all the rulers of the earth to submit to King Jesus and bring the glory and honor of their realms before Jesus in worship. And so every day when you pray the Lord's Prayer, every week when we pray God, uh, the Lord's Prayer together, we are striking one more blow against the kingdom of darkness and we are pushing history one step closer to the realization of Revelation 21. And so, moving into this next section, verses 12 through 14, we move, we circle back around to the beginning and we start singing the same song in a different key. So this uh, A prime section, verses 12 through 14, has a lot of similarities to the first section, verses 1 through 4. It says, For he rescues the needy man who pleads, and the lowly who has no one to help him. He spares the poor and needy, and the souls of the needy he saves. From exploitation and violence, he will redeem their souls, and precious is their blood in his eyes. Be sure to notice the logical connection between this section and the previous section. It says, for he rescues the needy man who pleads. The rulers of the earth submitting to the Lord's King and bringing their gifts for worship described in the previous section happens precisely because the Lord's King upholds God's righteousness and justice for the oppressed. 
the treatment of the poor and needy is the litmus test for whether or not a society is just. A wise man once said, a number of wise men I think have said this, serious black among them, a wise man once said, if you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. The principle is the same for society as a whole. A society that's great in many other ways cannot be considered just if the vulnerable are not protected from oppression. So so what does this look like? Here are a few random examples uh, that may help illustrate some ways uh, that societies can be just or more often unjust. I'll start, take one first uh, from the corporate world, not the political world. Uh, in the movie The Incredibles, Bob Parr, Mr. Incredible, works for an insurance company named InsuraCare. And this company does everything but care, right? They care nothing for their customers. They try to avoid paying claims at all costs. And Bob is constantly getting in trouble with his boss for paying claims and actually helping the customers navigate their impossibly complex bureaucracy. Okay, any company that operates on these principles would have to face the wrath of the king described in Psalm 72. This is decidedly unjust and oppressive. Okay, so how about a, an example in government? Another uh, example from fiction, but um, you know, a lot of these fictional examples are more real life than uh, uh, than we might think. Um, long before the Incredibles, Charles Dickens was drawing attention to the governmental labyrinths that prevented anyone from getting justice, prevented anyone from getting anything done, it seems. And Dickens has lots of examples, but l- there's a chapter in Little Dorrit that contains one of the most famous examples. It's called the Circumlocution Office. And this is how the circumlocution office is described. This is a department of government. No public business of any kind could possibly be done at any time without the acquiescence of the circumlocution office. Its finger was in the largest public pie and in the smallest public tart. It was equally impossible to do the plainest right and undo the plainest wrong without the express authority of the circumlocution office. If another gunpowder plot, a a plot to blow up the parliament, had been discovered half an hour before the lighting of the match, nobody would have been justified in saving the parliament until there had been half a score of boards, half a bushel of minutes, several sacks of official memoranda, and a family vault full of ungrammatical correspondence on the part of the circumlocution office. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like any governmental agency you've ever dealt with? Surely not. 
Surely not. But this is the exact sort of unjust government that Psalm 72 denounces. Okay, one more example from real life. After his conversion, the Emperor Constantine observed that the poor in in his empire couldn't get a fair hearing in court because their wealthy opponents simply would price them out of the legal of the legal battle. If the the poor actually got a judgment in their favor, their wealthy opponents would just appeal it to the next higher court, and eventually the poor would run out of money to continue the legal fight. And so Constantine realized that this was a major problem. This was incredibly unjust. And so to remedy this situation, Constantine created a parallel system of church courts that would arbitrate cases at no cost for people who couldn't afford to sue in civil court. And so a poor person who had no money to, uh, to fight in the, in the civil courts could uh, uh, have his case um, sent to these church courts and receive, uh, receive arbitration there. Okay, Constantine had his flaws, but this is a great example of applying Psalm 72 to real life, where the just, the poor, the poorest of the poor, the lowest of society, receive justice. Righteous leaders like Moses, like uh, Joseph in Egypt, like King David, like Constantine even, and many others have successfully used their administrative skills to provide justice for the poor and make the society flourish under their rule. And now this next to the last section, verses 15 through 17, describe how the righteous king, who is a blessing to his people and a blessing to the land, is also the recipient of blessings. It says, And may he live. Let gold of Sheba be given to him. Let the pra- let prayers be made for him continually. And let him be blessed all the days. There will be an abundance of grain in the land, even on the heads of the mountains. Its fruit will rustle like Lebanon, and they will blossom from the city like the grass of the earth. His name will be forever. In the presence of the sun, His name will increase, and they will be blessed in Him. All the nations will call Him happy." The king who causes the righteous to flourish will find himself blessed by the righteous. The king who rules in righteousness and justice will find that his subjects like to live under his rule. They want his reign to be long. And kings of other nations will want to come under his protection and favor. The language here intentionally echoes the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham to make his name great, to give him countless innumerable royal descendants, and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. And this is exactly what Psalm 72 promises to the Lord's righteous king. This is the reverse 
of the curse of Babel, which of course is ultimately realized in Christ and His church. As the uh, reading from Ephesians 3 made clear. And so the last section of this psalm, verses 18 and 19, is not just part of this psalm, it's actually the conclusion to the whole second book of the Psalter. And it culminates in this glorious doxology. Blessed be Yahweh God, the God of Israel, who alone does wonders, and blessed be His glorious name forever. All the earth will be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. But while this doxology actually belongs to the whole of Book 2, it fits very nicely as a conclusion to this psalm. The matching unit in the center of this psalm that corresponds with this one, the C unit, verses 12-14, through describes the universal dominion of the king and the homage that is rendered to him by all nations. And here, in this closing doxology, the corresponding section describes the universal dominion and glory of the Lord over all the earth. I think the the logic is clear. It's the righteous reign, one result, one significant result of the righteous reign of the anointed king is that God's glory and God's name is spread over all the earth. Jesus, of course, is the anointed king. He is the only king who can and will bring about the worldwide spread of God's glory. But earthly rulers have their part to play as well. Earthly rulers can enable the church to flourish or they can hinder the church's mission. Earthly rulers and kings and presidents and prime ministers can be a blessing to their people or they can be a curse. So Psalm 72 is a pronouncement and a promise that Jesus is the Son of God, the greater Son of David, the promised Messiah. This is what the world will look like under the rule of King Jesus. Jesus reigns over the world from heaven through His church. And so this is ultimately a vision of what life will look like as the church is successful in carrying out her mission in the world. This is a snapshot of a nation that has been discipled. This is what happens when kings and rulers kiss the Son and rejoice with trembling under His Lordship. But Psalm 72 is also a blueprint for earthly rulers. Psalm 72 is a primer for politicians and magistrates. Scripture, of course, repeatedly warns us against seeking salvation in political leaders. But political leaders who are submitted to the Lordship of Christ in executing His righteousness in their vocation are an important means by which the peace of God is realized in a society. Proverbs 14 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. 
And so any president or prime minister or king that wants to make his country great had better be living and breathing Psalm 72. Because righteousness is the only way to greatness. And I think it's important here to add that this can only happen when the church gets its act together and starts tutoring the kings of the earth in this sort of politics. When the church gets its act together and starts holding political leaders accountable to their God-given responsibilities, especially those who claim to be Christians. It is our responsibility to pray for our leaders. It is the church's responsibility to speak truth to power. And we cannot do that when we are in a sorry state ourselves. It is reformation in the church that will lead to transformation in society. We won't see a Psalm 72 king until we have a Psalm 72 church. And finally, the principles of this psalm can apply to virtually any sort of leadership position. The virtues of wisdom, justice, humility, and compassion described here are essential to every vocation. Psalm 72 teaches us to see any sort of leadership position as the opportunity to mediate God's blessings, to promote the flourishing of those under our care. When we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness in every sphere of life, in every vocation to which God has called us, we become agents of God's shalom. And this is my prayer for you, Trinity Presbyterian Church, that you will continue to grow up into full maturity in Christ, that you will be salt and light in every situation to which God has called you, that you all will remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of King Jesus, knowing that in King Jesus, your labor is not in vain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen and Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news that Jesus is King and that all nations belong to Him. We thank You that You have called all peoples to submit to the, to the righteous reign of the righteous King Make us faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven and help us as we seek to do our part to bring the glory of the nations into your church in worship so that the kingdoms of this world will indeed become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you praise and thanks for all your goodness and tender mercies. We bless you for the love that created us and that sustains us day by day. We praise you for the gift of your Son, our Savior, through whom you have made known your truth and grace. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, our Comforter. 
We thank you for the church, which is the body and bride of Christ. We thank you for the means of grace, your word, baptism, and the Eucharist. We thank you for the lives of all faithful and godly people and for the hope of the life to come. Help us to treasure in our hearts all that our Lord Jesus has done for us and enable us to show our thankfulness by lives that are given completely to your service. O Father, save, defend, and grow your church, purchased with the priceless blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us on the cross. Give to your church pastors endowed with your Holy Spirit and strengthen her through the preaching of the word and the celebration of the sacraments. Give her ruling elders who will shepherd the flock and deacons who will show mercy to the needy. Make your church perfect in love and in all good works and establish her in the faith delivered to the saints. Fill her with mercy for the lost and compassion for the poor. Sanctify and unite your people in all the world that one holy Catholic and apostolic church may bear witness to you, the God and Father of all. Lord, this day we especially pray for our own needs and concerns as a church body. Father, we give you thanks for our associate pastor, Jimmy Gill, and for his years here. And we pray for your blessings upon him as he and his family move to Live Oak, Florida, and where Jimmy begins his ministry there. May you establish his work in Live Oak. May you bless and prosper that work there. Would you grow your kingdom through Christ Redeemer Church? Father, we pray too for our pastoral intern, Jacob Handy, and for his home church, Providence, in Cairo, Michigan. Father, we pray for our church teacher, Peter Lightheart, as he writes and speaks and leads Theopolis, that you would bless his ministry and multiply his usefulness. Father, we pray for our officer training class and for all who are preparing for church leadership, that you would raise up from within this body new elders and deacons to serve us faithfully. And Father, we pray for the elders and deacons we have, that they may serve in humility and in charity and in unity. Father, we pray that as a church we might increase our outreach and find new ways to serve our communities, to bless those around us, that we might be a city on a hill, a light shining into the darkness, that we might be, as a congregation, the kind of church that our city needs us to be and that you call us to be in your word. Father, we pray for the children of our congregation, that they might be taught to worship you faithfully and to live as members of your covenant family, that they might be loyal all their days to the covenant that they entered into with you in their baptisms. Father, we pray for our expecting mothers, for Claire Maddox and Julie McDonald and Hannah Bourgeois. We pray that you would bless them and the children that they carry in their wombs. And Father, we pray that all of our homes would be filled with the love of Christ, that our families might be faithful covenant families, that our homes would be filled with the joy and the happiness of the gospel. Father, too, we pray for all who are sick and afflicted in our circles of family and friends, especially those we name in our hearts before you now. Father, grant all these that we have named before you the consolations of which they have need and overrule their present sufferings to their eternal good. Father, have mercy upon those to whom death draws near. Bring consolation to those in sorrow or mourning. And to all, grant a measure of your love to us, taking us into your tender care. Father, we pray for loved ones who are lost and do not know you, that they might be brought to a saving knowledge of you through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray for the rulers in our nation at every level of government, that they might be, Psalm 72 
type rulers, that they might rule in wisdom and faithfulness and humility and in the fear of God. Lord, we rejoice with thanksgiving in all those who have loved and served you in your church on earth and who now rest from their labors. Keep us in fellowship with all your people and bring us at length to the joy of your everlasting kingdom when our bodies are raised from the dead and we enjoy fellowship with you and your people in the new creation forever and ever. All these things, whatever else you see that we need, grant us, O Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, who died and rose again and now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, age after age. And hear us now, Father, as we are bold to pray in those words that our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.